Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 55, through chapter 24, verse 12. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping And looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your words and for your son, the living word. And we ask that your spirit be with us this morning as we reflect upon what is written so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Part of life as a type 1 diabetic is that you have good days with your blood sugar and you have bad days. And this past week, it seems, was entirely bad days for me. There are a number of factors involved in that. Stress can negatively affect your blood sugar. And as important and exciting as Holy Week is, for ministers, it's also a stressful experience. And changes in my schedule meant that I wasn't eating as well as I should have been. And the other thing is that Once your blood sugars get out of whack, you can get on this roller coaster of highs and lows, trying to return it to where it should be. All of these factors contributed to a week of bad days, which meant a week of my entire body being in pain. It meant a week of constant exhaustion. It meant moments where my blood sugars crashed and I felt as though my body was on the verge of giving out. And I tell you this not to get your sympathy, but so that you can understand what I'm about to say given my experience of living with a chronic illness. 
death is on my mind a lot. I know that if I'd been born less than a century ago, there would have been no treatment for the disease that's slowly poisoning my body. I know that there are still many of my peers today who die because they cannot afford the insulin that we need for survival. I know that every day that I have lived for the last nine years of my life is a particular blessing made possible only by the circumstances of the time and the social conditions into which I have been born. So yes, death is on my mind a lot, and I came to terms with the fragility of my mortality long ago. I think it's fair to say that for Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women, death must also have been on their minds this morning. Two days ago, they watched as their friend died on a cross just hours before the Sabbath began. And after his death, they went to work preparing the spices to tend to his body. But then, once Sabbath began, they had to wait for an entire day before they could go take care of their friend one final time. And so now that they're able to go about their grim work, they arrive at the tomb and they find that it's been opened. Imagine the scenarios that must have started running through their heads. Maybe it was something innocent and the body was just never covered up. Or maybe something more sinister had happened. Maybe one of Jesus' enemies has taken the chance to humiliate Christ one last time by defiling his body. So they enter the tomb to see what has happened, and much to their surprise, the body is simply not there. The scripture then says that suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them, and before the women even have time to start figuring out what has gone on, there are strangers in their midst. And it should be no surprise that this turn of events terrifies them. But the men in dazzling clothes are just there to deliver a message. The strangers tell them that they are looking for Christ in the wrong place, that he is not dead but risen and they remind the women of the words that Jesus had told them predicting this very turn of events. And so, being reminded of Jesus' words, the women go and tell not just the apostles, but all the rest of the disciples what has happened. And the apostles, the men who have been the closest friends of Jesus, do not believe what the women have to say. Death must have been on the minds of the apostles. They too had just seen their friend die on the cross. They saw him breathe his last breath. They saw the blood spill out of his side. And now the women come from his tomb to tell them that Jesus isn't dead? Is this some kind of sick joke? Do they think that the apostles are idiots? And of all the apostles... It's only Peter, the same Peter who denied knowing Jesus just hours before his death, who goes to see for himself. If what the women say is true, then maybe he can make things right with his friend. If Jesus really is alive, there's a chance for him to get the guilt that he feels off of his chest. 
And so Peter must have felt as though the world was lifted off his shoulders when he got to the tomb and found it empty. You see, the truth of Easter that we take for granted because we hear it so often is a truth that punched through the darkness of grief for the women and then for Peter. The truth of Easter is that death is not the most powerful thing. The author of Hebrews looks at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and writes, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. In other words, God saw our pain and our suffering and was so deeply moved that God became embodied in our flesh and blood in order to experience our pain and suffering for God's self. God became like us so that Christ could share in our experiences, so that Christ could walk with the poor and heal the sick, and yes, even feel the pain of death. And all of this was done so that Christ could faithfully empower us to overcome our fear and our anxieties. It was done so that we can know that our God has such love for us that he was willing to do something about it. Christ has triumphed over death so that just as Christ put on our flesh and blood, we might also be empowered to take on his image, to live into the lives of Christian perfection that we are called to live. Death is on my mind a lot, but it is not something I fear. I know that death does not have the final say on my life. I know that death, like the rest of creation, answers to the power of God. Death is not the final reality. It is not the ultimate truth of things. One of my favorite Christian books is Nonviolence in an Aggressive World by A.J. Musty. He begins his book by setting forth some foundational statements about his Christian perspective. And he writes, the Christian religion has something to say about the nature of the universe, of God. Jesus put it in the simple and human terms, which he constantly used, saying, God is Father, God is love. If this is more than a form of words, an incantation which gives us a comfortable feeling inside when we repeat it, it must mean that the most real thing in the universe, the most powerful, the most permanent, is love. In other words, nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God because love is the essential nature of God. Love is the thing that binds all of creation together. So death is not to be feared because death is not the worst thing. No, the worst thing that we can do is to set ourselves against the love of God. The worst thing that we can do is to see the power of God's love to overcome all obstacles and reject it. 
to look to more worldly means to overcome sin. The powers and principalities that seek to keep us enslaved to sin and death would convince us that we cannot trust in love, that we must instead turn to scheming, that we must rely on the strength of our own arms, that we must be the ones in control. Which is why Musty goes on to write, if evil rises up in its final, least rational, least excusable, most hideous form, then accept suffering at its hands and on its behalf. Let it nail you to the cross. Take suffering into your own soul. Do not drive its sword into the flesh or soul of an erring child of God. Thus, you will be showing the power of divine love, for God is love, to outlast and outwit all opposition. Or to put it another way, why, if self-sacrificial love is good enough for our Lord, is it not good enough for us? Why do we think that love is sufficient for Christ, but not sufficient for ourselves? If we are truly to be Easter people, then we must go to the cross with our Lord. We must trust in the power of love to overcome all things. We must be willing to die to the ways of the world so that we can be reborn as servants of Christ. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot fear the power of death and trust in the power of love. So die to the world and be reborn in Christ. Amen. And please pray with me. Lord of life and love, raise us up out of the depths of sin and death. Send us forth to proclaim your good news as those who know that your love is the ultimate reality of the universe. Strengthen us for the fight against the powers of this world. Amen.